Good morning, Four Oaks Church. It's really awesome to be here with you in person. For those of you who are watching online, um, look forward to the time that we can all be back together again. But I'm Paul Gilbert, lead pastor here. And again, uh, dads, happy Father's Day. Now, one of you confided to me, and I'm going to protect your identity because you're very guilty in this, but, but you confided in me that you dread coming to church sometime on Father's Day because you said this is when you get beat up. It's when you're reminded that you're a promise breaker, not a promise keeper. You go home feeling crushed, guilty, destroyed. And, and just let me just put you at ease, men. No worries. You should know better. That's what our men's retreats are for, okay? But not this morning. We're going in a completely different direction. Actually, we're going to talk about husbands because that's the part of the passage that we're in in our journey through First Peter. But remember, Peter is making a point to remind us that we are sojourners, that we are strangers, that we are spiritual aliens, so to speak. In other words, we're part of two kingdoms. You're part of two kingdoms. We're part of the kingdom of this world. It's where we live. It's where we habitate, have relationships, marry, have children, work. But we're also part of the kingdom of God, which is eternal. And Peter is wanting to really press forward to us in this section how we as God's people, as spiritual exiles, are to live in this world in a way that honors God. How are we to navigate our relationships in a way that we adorn the gospel, that we sort of put on our gospel garments and display the worth of Christ, the value of Christ in all of our relationships. And so Peter's been talking to us about that. He's like, here's what this looks like when you relate to the government. Here's what it looks like when you relate as husband and wife in the family. Here's what it looks like in the workplace, in the public square. And what's interesting that Peter says here. In this whole section, as he addresses all these relationships, he says, if you want to know the secret sauce, so to speak, like the kind of, if you want to boil it all down, like the the key fundamental ingredient for what God calls his people to in all of their various relationships can be boiled down to one word. And this one word, I know, is like screeching fingernails on the chalkboard culturally, right? But he says that one word is submission, submitting yourself. And that is like a foreign language, right? In our cultural moment right now, where it's all about winning the argument. It's about dominating. It's about um, using your platform, wherever that is, social media or otherwise, to press your point, to grab hold of your rights. And Peter says, listen, all of that is inverted in the gospel, He said, because here's what Jesus did. Jesus, of all people who had a divine claim to being, uh, having all the prerogatives and blessings of being God, yet he gave those up willingly and submitted himself by dying, dying a thief's death on the cross. He submitted himself to us, for us, so that we might have life. Thus, as strangers, exiles in this land, now we are to walk likewise. That's how we adorn the gospel. And so Peter, last week, remember we, talked, we were addressing wives, and he talked about what it means for a wife to adorn the gospel by submitting to her husband. But today the shift focuses to the men. And there's one verse 
given to the men, and it's not merely because men are dense and require fewer words or can only handle fewer words, although I'm sure that's true. But remember in the context that when women became Christians as part of a non-believing home, they were in a precarious position. That really, they, they were in a, in a very vulnerable place, and so Peter gives them these words to walk wisely. But for the men, he gets right down to brass tacks. And what's interesting about this passage, and I don't know if you've, if you've ever thought about it this way, we typically think about submission as some kind of responsibility of the wife. But here, Peter says, look in verse 7, likewise husbands. Well, that's an interesting term because that's what he says in every section of this particular portion of his letter. Likewise, you submit in this way. Likewise, you submit in this way. And he is going to tell us, husbands, that there is a way. Now, it's different and has a different function, and it looks differently. But there is a way, even as the head, as the leader um, of your marriage and of your family, you also are to live in submission, in submission to your wife. And Paul says much the same thing, remember? The whole section in Ephesians 5 where he talks about wives submitting to husbands, he prefaces that section by saying, and now submit to one another. Now, this is going to look differently. It's going to have a different function, but men, it is very real. And so today we want to answer three questions in our time together, and here they are. Husbands, what is God calling you to do? What are husbands to do? Number two, how are they to do it? How are you to do it? And three, why is it so important? And as we dive in, let's commit our time to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we understand what dissonance there is around a text like this in a culture like ours. And so, Father, um, whether we're single, married, divorced, older, younger, married, not married, whatever, Lord, your word is relevant. It is trustworthy. It is true. It cuts across all corners of all cultures of all time everywhere. And thus, it is applicable to us today. And what we are asking you to do is to show us that. To show us to speak this truth. To make your words come alive in our hearts. That we might be together, the people of God, on mission. Living as sojourners, exiles in this world in a way that displays the gospel in all that we do. Lord, that's what we're asking now. We commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, folks, here we go. What are husbands called to do? Verse 7, Peter says, live with your wives in an understanding way. And that word understanding, it literally means according to knowledge. Husbands, live with your wives according to knowledge. And of course, in the Septuagint and in the Old Testament, that word for knowledge is the same one that Moses uses in Genesis 2 to talk about Adam knowing his wife. There is a deep intimacy there. There is a sexual intimacy there. And I think what Peter is pointing us here to is the fundamental construct of marriage. 
So in other words, husbands, when you get up in the morning, and, and if you're thinking, if it's even a remote thought in your mind, like, I want to make my marriage better today. I want to honor God in my marriage. What is like, if you could bullet down to one term in terms of what Peter is saying here, what, what word would that be? And I think it's simple. I think it's oneness, all right? Genesis 2, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. See, when Peter here uses this word understanding, he's pushing us as men to embrace a holistic view of marriage. To think about what oneness looks like across the spectrum of all aspects of our marriage and family life. All of them, emotional, mental, physical, spiritual. Now, Generally speaking, and there's exceptions to what I'm about to say, but, but as a general rule, I would simply say this. If there are deep-rooted sexual problems in a marriage, it's not just a sexual problem. It's primarily a oneness problem. Because oftentimes, hurt, dysfunction, frustration arises, men, when sexual intimacy and oneness is pursued outside the context of the holistic oneness that I think Peter has in view here. And I think what Peter wants to make clear, men, is that it's our responsibility to lead that pursuit of oneness. It's our job to monitor that. It's our job to seek that out. It's our job to know where we are at any given point of time on that oneness spectrum. You've heard me say this before, but remember, a marriage is never in neutral, never. While there's times that it waxes and wanes and comes together and drifts apart, by and large, if you think you're in neutral, you're losing ground. If you think that you're sort of at a status quo, invariably like a tide sitting you're sitting on the beach and your your children are in the water and you're watching them play and they're slowly being pulled down by the tide that is the inevitable drift of all marriages apart from the intentional pursuit of oneness and so when peter says live with your wives in an understanding way or according to knowledge understand men that's a command it's not a suggestion it's not a nifty tip Okay, it's not something you find in a fortune cookie. It's a it's an urgent directive from Peter. And this idea of according to knowledge is that as men in pursuit of oneness with your wife, you are to set your mind and heart heart to do an in-depth study of her. What are her desires? What are her wants? What are her dreams? What are her fears? What are her anxieties, her insecurities? What are her thoughts? And heaven help us, men, what are her actual feelings, right? And so there, there is this sense in which you make it your primary endeavor as a husband to know my wife in every single way because it's my job to push us towards oneness, now, Paul says much the same thing in Ephesians 5, and you're familiar with this passage probably. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church 
because we are members of his body. When it says, husbands, love your wives as should, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, men, here, here's, here, here's a couple of gut checks for us. If your wife is struggling, you're struggling. If your wife has an issue or a problem, by definition, biblically, theologically, you have an issue or a problem. If she's wrestling with something, you're wrestling right alongside of her. Now, I'm not talking about the good old Southern, you know, if mama ain't happy, nobody's happy. I'm not talking about that, right? A lot of times that's just a manipulative thing that's pretty degrading and it says I'm, I'm trying to negotiate my freedom and we got to keep mom happy so I can do what I want to do. That's not what Peter is talking about. Men, he's talking about knowing your wife. That's the first question. Do you know her? I mean, like, do, like, do you know her? I don't mean about her. I don't mean like what's happened in her day, although that's part of it. But like what's going on inside internally, where she is. I mean, is knowing your wife the goal? And I think Peter says as it is. Or do you view your wife more as an obstacle to your goals? In other words, when you think about all the things that you could do or you want to do in your life that, that equate to happy life or a flourishing life or a, an awesome life, whatever is on that list, all of the things that do you do, your hobbies, your games, your hunting, your fishing, your traveling, your hanging out, your watching football, all those are fine in their own context, right? But are you engaging your wife around those things primarily as a way to negotiate what you really want to do, to do your thing, or are you engaging her primarily to know her, to bring her alongside of you? Is oneness, in other words, a principal category in your marital calculations? Now, when it says likewise husbands, and I think this gets to the heart of what it means, husbands, to, be, to live in a submissive way to your wives. When Peter says likewise, I think he's talking about here a fundamental submission of your needs to her needs. See, the way that you live with your wife in a wise and understanding way is to put her needs first. As one of our elders told me, and the, more, and the older I get, the longer I'm married, the more I think I understand this. He said this, you know, I, and the way I think about marriage, he says, men have desires, women have needs. And you may say, but as a man, I've got all kind of needs, and, and granted, but men, let me tell you something. If you live as if your needs are just as important or more important than the needs of your wife, that relationship will invariably implode. It will invariably decay. It will invariably deteriorate. Now, why is that? Because your relationship as designed who you are uniquely as a man, who your wife is designed uniquely as a woman, the relationship is not meant to bear all of your needs and all of your drama. You are called by God to lead in oneness where you are putting the desires and needs of your wife first. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's, 
That's what it means to love your wife as Christ has loved the church. So, I mean, just a couple of practical things to think about. How often do you create space and time and opportunity just to listen to your wife? Just to ask her questions, to draw her out. You know, I think, let's be honest, a lot of times we don't do this as men because we don't want to be responsible for what she says, right? We were kind of scared about what she might say. But when we take that opportunity and we find, you know, and we're not, we're not defaulting to our inner lawyer, right? And when she says, I'm not doing well, or the marriage is not doing well, your response shouldn't be, but oh, I think it is, right? <laughs> I think it is. That minimizes, that devalues her perspective. You want to know why she feels that way. You want to know why she is in the place that she is at. This is not the time to argue. It's the time to listen. And a lot of times, let's be honest, we know if we ask the question, we're responsible to listen to and attend the answer. And you may say, Pastor Paul, that sounds like just, that sounds like a little more work than what I'm used to. Yes. Okay. Bingo. Right. You're, you're getting the idea now. This is why it's a big deal, right? This is why it's a big deal to say, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church who died, who gave himself up for her. Let me say, well, Pastor Paul, what does that look like? Point number two, how are husbands to do this? Let's look back at the text, verse seven. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now that word honor, it's not like military honor, like saluting, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. The word showing honor literally means to value or to treat as precious. Now, man, I want you to think about one earthly possession, okay, that you have or, or thing that you've acquired that is very valuable to you, okay, that is most valuable, that you treasure greatly. And I want you to think about how you engage and interact around that one particular thing for a second. Back in um, 1990, when I did a mission trip with crew, uh, then known as Campus Crusade, to Singapore, um, I had one overarching goal that summer, besides, of course, sharing the gospel to people who needed to hear it, right? Um, And that was to get one of those giant rice paddy hats. You know what I'm talking about that you see in the movies? You're like, those hats are massive. They make make the 10-gallon Texas hat look itty-bitty, right? And so I finally, I looked all summer, and finally, right before we, we were set to leave to fly back home, um, I found the hat, and it was, it was every bit as massive as I was hoping it would be. The problem was it cost like $18,000 to ship back home, right? So, so that wasn't going to happen. I couldn't pack it in the suitcase. I mean, I couldn't even, I mean, it would have, you get the idea. I, it would have taken three suitcases laid out like this to, to pack it. And so I did the only thing that I could do, and that was I carried it on the plane. Now, when I carried it on the plane, um, it wouldn't fit in the overhead bin. It wouldn't fit underneath the seat. The only place it would fit anywhere was where? Right on my lap. And that's where it rested for 24 hours, 6,000 miles as we traveled around the world. Now, sadly, um, 
we threw that hat out when I got married. But nonetheless, that's a whole other story, right? It was, by the end of that trip, what? My precious, right? It was. It was, it was a Gollum, Lord of the Rings kind of thing going on there. It was like I, I nurtured that thing every step of the way. Peter says that we are to treat, when we honor our wives, that means we're to treat them as priceless or invaluable. We are to look out for their physical and spiritual well-beings being at all costs, okay? And he says, as the weaker vessel. And again, that's, 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 a, that's a tough word in our particular culture. What does he mean, weaker vessel? I think there's two primary things in view here. One is, I think the most obvious, there is a physically weaker dimension on average, okay, on average between husbands and wives. Now, John Piper, we preached on this sermon five years ago, um, talked about that, that he asked the question, why are there no Olympic sports that have men competing against women? And I was told after the first service, there is actually one sport, equestrian. So anyway, there, there is that, right? And the, and, and the reason, typically not, I mean, it, it's a very obvious thing, right? It's, it's, a, it's a physical difference, which makes, which is interesting now, five years later, what are we arguing about, Right? Should transgendered women participate in women sports? So in other words, biological men who want to transition into being a woman are now participating in women's sports, and what is happening across the board? They're dominating, right? And it's like a collision of cultural values as, as, as the secular world tries to make sense of all this. So one, Peter is just reminding us, men, on the whole... Related to your wife, you are stronger. You, um, you talk louder. Your voice is deeper. You can communicate things just by walking into a room by virtue of your demeanor, by virtue of the, the pitch level of your voice, by virtue of what you say. I mean, and men, we all know there are those times. Not for me, but I've heard it about it from you guys, right? There's those times, like as dad, you walk into the room, and there's always some line that you've crossed. It's always over something critical, right? Like television volume or something like that. But you walk into the room, and you have that demeanor, you have that face, and everybody gets quiet, right? Uncomfortably so. And there is that tension in the air, because you're projecting something harsh and threatening. And Peter is saying, no, 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 no. No quicker way to shut down your wife emotionally than to forget that she is the weaker vessel physically. Meaning you can't engage her, talk to her in the same way you would engage and talk to other men in other contexts. So I think that's one way that we live Husbands, we live in a wise and understanding way, the way that we honor our wives. But I think there's a second point here, too. And I think this speaks to the social position oftentimes women find themselves in. Precarious positions, vulnerable positions. It is by by nature of biology and everything else that women oftentimes take on more of the risk in a relationship. Women are the ones who bear children. Women oftentimes are the ones who are dependent 
financially. Women are oftentimes the one who sort of leverage everything for the sake of and on behalf of their husbands, which can naturally put them in a very vulnerable position, which can naturally put them in a very precarious position, which is why, men, it is so devastating when men get older and their wives have invested all of this in them, that they turn around, they divorce their wives, they have an affair, they marry someone younger. What oftentimes this communicates and what, what the reality of what is happening is that all of the investment that your wife has made in you, now someone gets to come and enjoy sort of the borrowed capital of what she has invested. And so there is this sense, men, that we are living with our wives in an understanding way to, to realize that by virtue of their position, by virtue of childbearing, by virtue of all of those things, they are in a naturally more vulnerable position, which is why Peter exhorts these brothers, look back at the text, since they are heirs of you with the grace of life. Now remember, in 1 Peter 1.4, Peter's already told us that we have an inheritance as the people of God. But here's what you need to know, and this is why Christianity was revolutionary, why it transformed the way that women were treated in the ancient world. Because Peter says, this is not just an inheritance for the men, as would be common in that culture. This is an inheritance for women as well. Men, your wife is a co-heir of yours. You are, you are now before Christ, in Christ, equal in standing and worth. And this, I think, comes with a charge to us as men to think about how are we nurturing our wives to encourage them, to empower them, to pursue their gifts, to pursue their abilities, to pursue their dreams, to help them flourish. Husbands, let me just ask you a question. Do you know what's going on internally with your wife right now? Where is she struggling? Where, what is she aspiring to? How has she navigated this season of craziness culturally that we find ourselves in? And as we take the responsibility for oneness and in pursuit of that, what does Peter say? He says, we are honoring her because, husband, she is the co-heir of Christ with you. John Piper says this, husbands, you are married to a queen. You are married to someone who is a joint heir right alongside of you and all the blessings and the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, lastly, and then we're going to be done. Why is this so important? Why is this so important? Look back at verse 7, where Peter says, let me just read the whole verse again and, and get to the last part. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that. So in other words, husbands, here's, here's, here's the basic motivation. Here is the basic um, impetus behind my charge to you about loving your wife. He says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now the word hindered literally means to cut into. In other words, Peter's saying, husbands, when you fail to live with your wife 
in this sort of way your spiritual fellowship not only with your wife but also with God is disrupted. Think about the times in your life when it's hardest to pray. And sometimes we might be really wrestling with a particular sin or something going on in our lives. And when I say hard to pray, I don't mean those times when we acknowledge, are acknowledging our sin, we, we know it, we're confessing it, we're repenting from it, we're, we're, we're seeking restoration in it and forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about those times where we know there is something in our life that is not right. We're talking about there are those times in our life where we know the course that we are on is not a God-honoring course. That we sort of have our fist held up to God. That we've decided our own course, and when that is invariably our spiritual situation, guess what? It is very hard to pray, right? Understandably so. There is a, there's a block okay, in our fellowship with God. And Peter says, not only is this true personally, husbands, okay, but it's true maritally as well. See, spiritual fellowship between husband and wife when the husband is not living with the wife in a wise and understanding way is one that bleeds over into your relationship with God as well. You can't say, husband, everything in my life is awesome. I'm growing in holiness, and I am, have all these relationships at church and my small group, and I'm accountable, and, and I'm growing in grace, but my marriage, let me tell you, pff, awful, terrible. And again, I'm not saying that marriages don't struggle, but see, there's a big difference in that and in saying, brothers, I'm having a hard time. I need you to pray for me. I need, I need some help. I need some accountability. I need you to speak some words and truth and wisdom. See, guys, if you've got a fundamental marriage problem, it's not just simply a marriage problem. It's a God problem. And I can't help but think that Peter has Jesus' sermon on the mount when Jesus says this in Matthew 5. He says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, what? Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, first, be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. Guys, maybe the most righteous, holy, God-honoring thing that you can do in this season, season of your life is not to ask, what amazing, incredible, awesome things can I do for God? But how can I live with my wife according to knowledge? How can I join her in the fabric of her own life where she is and where she is struggling, where she is wrestling, where she is praying? God says, that's what pleases me, men. That's what pleases me. Don't, don't come with all of this high and holy stuff if fundamentally you have your heart set in a place where you are no longer pursuing your wife. So here's a question for you men. Do you want to faithfully love your bride? 
Do you want to faithfully do that? And now the reason I ask that is because after 25 years of pastoral ministry, I no longer assume that the answer is an automatic yes. I don't assume that anymore. See, it's so easy as Christian husbands in a conservative evangelical context to say, well, you know, come on, Pastor Paul, we're, we're not getting divorced, of course. So, so does it really kind of, I mean, is it crucial what level of marital intimacy and happiness and flourishing that we, that we, that we really have? I mean, come on, that's just going to take a ton of work, and that's just going to take a lot of effort, and we're busy and we've got kids and grandkids and we're kind of doing those things. Jim Collins says an interesting thing in his book, Good to Great. He says, you know, the enemy of, the enemy of good, or let me, I gotta, gotta rephrase this. He says that, that good is always the enemy of great. Do you know what he means when he says that? Or average is always the enemy of good. See, there is a sense in which we can just kind of settle in at a particular point in our marriage and say, you know, I, I, I think we're both sort of kind of fine right where things are. I mean, they're not, they're not a zero, but they're a long way from 10. You know, they're kind of five, maybe six on a really good day, but maybe even like sometimes three and four. And so I have to ask, as the leader of your home and family, what do you want? And this is a time to be just brutally honest with yourself. Because that's where it, that's where it fundamentally begins. And, and, it, and for you today, man, it might just simply say, you know what? Our, my marriage has been a four. And I've been kind of fine with it. And I'm just really realizing this is not what Peter is calling me to that there is something more here. And obviously, this side of heaven, we're never going to fully get there. We totally understand that. But this is why Peter gives us the command, men, live with your wives in an understanding way according to knowledge today. But if you are someone here this morning as a husband who says, you know, Pastor Paul, I truly do want this. I know it's not always the case for me, but I sincerely before the Lord desire it to be so. You just have to know, men, that before you can effectively love your bride, the most foundational thing that you can apply your heart to this morning is understanding again what it means to be the bride of Christ. See, it doesn't start with Husbands, go love your wives as Christ loved the church. It starts with Jesus loves you, men, and he laid his life down for you. He laid his life down for you because you are his bride. You were helpless and broken and sinful and flawed. And Jesus came and laid his life down as your bridegroom so that you could be restored to life in him. You and I need to be reminded, men, that as we come to Jesus as his bride, that he is very eager this morning to love you, to accept you, to hear your confession, to hear your prayer, to hear your cry, to hear your cries of your heart for your marriage. Jesus died for you. 
That's the most fundamental reality any of us as men and as a person in this room can come to this morning. Are you the bride of Christ? And Peter says, if you're the bride of Christ now, by his grace, men, go love your wives as Christ has loved the church. And I'll give you the power and the grace that you need even when you fail. See, there's a lot at stake here, men, besides just having a good marriage. Peter says what's at stake here is the actual gospel. And he says, wives, as you submit to your husbands, and likewise husbands, as you live in a way that submits yourself to your wife and her needs, what is displayed for the world to see is the gospel. That you adorn yourself with the attributes and the holiness of Christ so that when people, when your kids, when your grandkids, when your neighbors can look at your marriage, they will know there is something unique. There is something distinctive. It has the marks of the gospel written all over it. And may God give us the grace, men, to live that out today. Let's pray.